Welcome to a special mini-series on Sacred City Vision Drip. We've been talking a lot about generational faithfulness as of late, and in this vein, we put together a parenting conference last weekend. And so you're about to hear audio from that conference. You'll hear from Pastor Rob, who gives us a 30,000-foot overview, theological overview of, of covenantal succession. I'll, I'll teach on the next series about standing on the promises, and then Pastor Justin will lead us into some really practical things about culture and in the home and discipline. I hope you enjoy this. Excited to welcome you back here to our Sacred City Parenting Conference uh, this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Sam Schmidt. Um, I'm the church planter pastor here at Sacred City Moline. Um, we're happy to be hosting you here this weekend. Uh, a little bit about myself. I've been married to my wife, Becca, who is my glory for almost 11 years. Uh, we've got four boys, Kuiper, who's eight, Riken, six, Zane, four, and Jaber, who's coming up on Two, and all these boys do their part to keep our house loud and fun and, uh, and our local health care providers in business. Um, yeah, well, mostly Jesse Corns. Stitches a couple weeks ago. We've got a dentist appointment coming up this week, so please pray for us. Um, I am admittedly, admittedly the, the least experienced parent that will be up here from this podium this morning. Nevertheless, I am excited uh, at the opportunity to teach this next session. What we're talking about is standing on the promises. So uh, on that worksheet, I didn't put a title on there. You can do it for me. Standing on the promises is the title of this. And so I want to, to say a word of prayer, and then we are going to get after it together. So pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for this day that you've, you've made for us, a day full of new mercies. We thank you for this room full of parents and aspiring parents um, who desire to honor you in all aspects of life, especially in our homes and our parenting. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with us uh, as we open up your scriptures together, speak to our hearts, convict us of our sin, and lead us into righteousness. God, we pray that you would do a good work here among your people today, um, that we would go home from here um, as better parents, more equipped, uh, more certain of the promises of God, and joyful in our homes. Lord, we ask that you would do this work for your glory, for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, most of you were here with us last night as P Pastor Rob started us off talking about covenant succession. Um, for some of you, that might be new terminology, although the concept is probably familiar, and it is a, a quite simple concept. God intends for Christian parents to live by faith and receive all the blessings of Christ and to then pass them down to our children unto a thousand generations. And most Christians throughout church history are a product of covenant succession, including many of us. Uh, we were raised by Christian parents who had their hope in God, and they have taught us to do the same. To varying degrees, our parents taught us to pray. They taught us to read the scriptures. They taught us to worship with the saints each Lord's Day. And our parents were faithful to do, as Proverbs 22.6 says, to train the children in the way that they should go. And while we may have stumbled along the way, we're here and we have not yet departed from it. And now, we as Christian parents have been tasked with the same call. 
of Proverbs 22.6, to train your children in the way that they should go so they will not depart from it. This faithful, covenant-minded parenting is God's normative way of carrying out his covenant from generation to generation. We see this covenant succession being spoken of all throughout the Old Testament. Rob hit on a number of passages last night, but also in the New Testament, Acts 2, 39, where Peter says the promise is for you and for your children. This means that the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ trickles down the bloodlines of our families. And while this is true, God is gracious to say that this is a promise that is also for those who are far off. In other words, this is a promise that is also for those who did not come from a Christian home. Nevertheless, God saved them from their sins. And regardless of how you came into the family of God, whether you are a first-generation Christian, and I'm just curious, are, are there any first-generation Christians in the room? Praise, oh man, I'm going to cry just thinking about that. Woo! Um, whether you're a first-generation Christian or you have a family heritage of faith that dates all the way back to Abraham, your deepest desire for your children as a Christian parent ought to be that they too find themselves in the family of God, that your kids would grow up knowing and loving and walking with Jesus all of the days of their life. So when it's their turn to sit on the hot seat at Missional Community and share their story, it's a pretty short night, right? They, they tell a relatively what we call like a boring story or a mild story. It's not filled of sex, drugs, and rock and roll of rebellion and just heathenry. It's a story of God's faithfulness and his grace and God's continued blessing throughout their life. Now, I think that this is what it means for us as parents to want the best for our kids. There is nothing better, there's nothing more fulfilling than to see our children find their place in God's family. As R.C. Sproul puts it, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in the truth. And if that doesn't inflame our hearts, I'm afraid we have no hearts to inflame. So, as Christian parents, we ought to desire covenant succession for our kids. Now, it's one thing to desire covenant succession for our kids. It's a matter of audacious faith to expect that for our kids. Now, here's how the definition that Rob used last night uh, to define covenant succession. Check this out. Covenant succession, it's on your page there, is the scriptural teaching that children of believers are expected to succeed in the faith of their parents, and this is accomplished through the divinely ordained means of covenant nurture. So we, we can expect for our children to succeed in our faith. Now, that, that might sound presumptuous, right? That, that sounds bold and daring of us, and, and it would be presumptuous of us to expect such a thing if God had not promised to do this which we expect. Deuteronomy 7.9 fills us with the promises. Therefore, now that the Lord your God, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Psalm 103, 17 and 18. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and those who remember his commands and do them. The God that we worship is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Our Heavenly Father does not lie. He does not deal with us deceitfully. Therefore, we ought to expect God to fulfill the promises in which he makes. And oftentimes, here's the, the kicker of it, oftentimes his fulfillment of the promises exceed what we imagine. Where we hope for just, our prayers are turned towards our kids. One generation, what we'll see is God delivers on the promises and give us dozens more generations. Now to expect this is a tremendous act of faith. It's not a a flimsy kind of, of wishful thinking. It's not a fingers crossed, man, I hope this shakes out in my favor kind of a faith. But this is a true faith. True faith as Hebrews 11.1 defines it. Faith is Assurance of things hoped for. Assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. We not only believe that God is able to save our kids, we are believing that God will do as he says. This is the kind of faith that Christian parents ought to have. This kind of faith, this audacious faith. And I would suggest above all, Parenting is an act of faith. Above all, parenting is an act of faith. From top to bottom, from front to back, from side to side, Christian parenting is an act of tremendous faith. We feed our children by faith. We disciple our children by faith. We teach, discipline, cuddle, dress, wrestle, pray for, and love our children by faith, day by day, season by season. And we do so As we do so, we're confident that God will bring about what he has promised us. Now, I I not only want to assert that all parenting is an act of faith, but I would be so bold to say, based on what Paul says in Romans 14, 23, when he says that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin, I would say that parenting that does not proceed from faith is sin. Parenting done without the promises of God in view or parenting done without a scriptural expectation that God will do as he says is an act of faithlessness. May God grant us repentance and fill us with greater faith that produces faithfulness. Now, if we are to live and parent by faith, we must realize, as Pastor Doug Wilson puts it, at the heart of covenantal faithfulness is promise believing. At the heart of Covenantal faithfulness is promise believing. And the Bible is full, chock full of glorious promises for parents and their children. So my goal this morning is twofold. First, I want to show you what these promises are. Because if we're going to believe the promises, we need to know what it is we're believing. And two, I want to show you what it looks like to believe these promises. Or in other words, what it looks like to stand on the promises of God. So... That's, that's the course we're going to take this morning. Um, I need a drink first. I can tell I'm already getting parched. Okay, if you think about it, if you think about, if you just take a step back. It's, it's a normal thing. Parenting is a normal thing, but if you step back and think about it, parenting is wild. 
okay? Parenting's Parenting is simultaneously one of the most fulfilling and one of the most challenging things that God can call a person to do. Parenting is loaded with joy, it's loaded with responsibility, and it's loaded with significance because what we do as parents matters tremendously. And since God has designed our children to be impressionable, we have the ability as parents, for better or for worse, to set the trajectory for our children's lives, not only their lives, but for eternity. Now, it would be really easy to get overwhelmed by this reality. I mean, the, the, the stakes are high here. It would be easy to allow our parental responsibilities to bog us down, right, to, to, to suck the joy out of our households and be crippled by the high stakes of parenting, but God doesn't leave us out there on our own. God is with us, and he gives us promises to hold on to. So God, to keep us from being overwhelmed by his high calling, has given us promises. And we must be familiar with the promises of God and cherish them. We must be familiar with the promises of God, and we must cherish them. I want to break it down. What do we mean, though, when we talk about the promise of God? It's easy to talk about the promise of God as sort of this nebulous, abstract idea. Well, let's, let's work it out. And what I want to do, uh, as I specify, I want to work from the broad contours of this promise and then get into some of the specifics of it. What I want to do is take us first to Genesis 17, 7 through 9, which Rob brought up last night, uh, and give us a bit of an overview here. Um, this is where God is, is establishing a covenant with, with Abraham or renewing this covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So the first layer here of the promise that God makes with Abraham is that God will be Abraham's God. He says, I will be your God. I, and this doesn't just stop with Abraham. This isn't not a, a one-generational thing. The promise is an everlasting covenant throughout every generational layer of Abraham's fa family tree. God will be their God. This is for Abraham. This is for his children and his children's children and his children's children's children. This is where you cue the, the Carrie Job song, right? And the children, and the children, and the children, and the children. Right? That, that's the first part. That's the first part of the promise. God will be the God of Abraham and his children. But there's also a second part to this promise. That God will give his people a place. God will give Abraham and his family the land of their sojournings, the land of Canaan, the promised land. So God creates this covenant. He makes this promise to Abraham. And we might be thinking, okay, good for Abraham. That sounds great. What does this have to do with me? Right? I'm not Jewish. I would imagine most of us in here have no Hebrew roots. I'm personally mostly German and Swedish, and I think the rest of me is baked goods. <laughs> how, how do I get in on this? How, how, do I, how is this promise that God made to Abraham any kind of significance to me? Well, this is where the Apostle Paul speaks 
um, of how the recipients and the place of the promise have greatly been expanded through the person and work of Christ. As it's written here in Ephesians chapter 2, take a look here at verse uh, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, you, you non-Jews in the flesh, those who are called the uncircumcision. So you were outside of the covenant. If, God's, if circumcision is God's way to mark his covenant people, Paul's saying that you one time were outside of the covenant. You had nothing to do with the covenant. So he says, if, if you at one time were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, so by the covenant people, which is made in the flesh of hands, remember that you at one time. Now, th- this, is, this is our our reality as people who at one time were outside of the covenant. He says, you at, at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, so now because of Christ, you have been brought into the covenant. Now, in Galatians 3, 7, we are told that those who have faith in Jesus Christ are the sons of Abraham. So this is how we get grafted into Abraham's family tree. And so this means that when God made promises back in Genesis 17, he knew full well that you and me and our children and our children's children would be included in this Genesis 17 promise. And because there are way more people getting in on this now, it's only fitting that God expands the allotment of land from Canaan to the entirety of the earth. Right? As Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. God established the people and he gives them a place. Now, if you're looking for an example of how God over-delivers on his promises, this would be a good one. Right? This, this, this is, and this fact that Gentiles are now fellow heirs with the Jews and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, this is what uh, causes Paul to bow his knees before the Father. Right? In this, this awesome prayer that we have in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, for this reason, right? He's referring to that, what he just said in chapter 2. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And then he keeps going on. He closes up the prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul knows God has no intentions of closing the floodgates of his grace and mercy until Jesus comes back to restore the cosmos and consummate the kingdom of of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven will become the kingdom of earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And for eternity, those who are in Christ will reap the benefits and blessings of the promise. And this is all for God's glory. And so here you have the broad strokes of the promise, that God will be our God And the God of our children, Robert Rayburn says it this way, that that the phrase, to be our God, is the Bible's way, most, is the Bible's, to be our God, is, sometimes I, I, guys, (laughs) 
Oh yeah, here, I knew what he was trying to say. To be our God is the Bible's way to comprehend the whole of eternal salvation in the fewest words possible. To be our God means salvation in fewest words possible. This is the ultimate promise of God. The ultimate promise of God is salvation for you and for your children. And we see this again pop up in Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is the fulfillment of the proto-evangelium that we see in Genesis chapter 3, right? The very first promise that God makes Adam and Eve after they've sinned, after they've fallen, uh, they ate the fruit of, of knowledge of good and evil, They're experiencing the consequences, the curse of rebellion. And then God makes a promise that he would crush the serpent and he would save Adam and Eve from the penalty and curse of sin and restore all things back to himself. This is a comprehensive salvation. Cornelius Van Til says it like this. The sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. Everything that sin has broken, God promises to restore to a greater glory. This is the comprehensive salvation God offers. So, in this way, you can think of salvation as this giant, glorious diamond, right? This big old rock, dazzling, beautiful, glimmering, reflecting the light. Right? That, that is what salvation is. It's a treasure. It's a prize. And now what we're going to do is we, we say this is the gem, right? This is the, the, the granddaddy of all promises. What we're going to do is zoom in here and look at some of the different facets of the diamond. Right, the, the pieces that, that compose what this salvation is. And so what I want to do is call your attention to four big facets that reflect all kinds of glory into our eyes. So let, let's turn back um, to, to a passage I had referenced already, Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And what I want to show you is the first facet uh, of this promise is that God promises to have steadfast love throughout all generations. The promise is steadfast love throughout all generations. You see this in verse 17. It says, the steadfast love, the chesed of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It has no beginning, it has no end. So in other words, the steadfast love of the Lord is transgenerational. Transgenerational love. God's love is not a fickle love. God's love is not hot and cold. God's love is not a, a car that's been running for a long time, driving for a long time, and now it's just running on fumes. Right? God, God's love does not dwindle or diminish over time. The steadfast love of the Lord stays. It's, it's on full blast all the time. This means... That the same great love with which God loved us to make us alive in Christ, right, to take us from death to life, this same great love awaits our children. This is a well that will not run dry. It will always be there. It's always accessible. That's a promise. The second facet that we see in Psalm 103.17 is that the righteousness of God is extended to our children and their children. So the righteousness of God gets extended. This is a promise. So this means that the same grace that justified you 
and seated you with Christ in the heavenly realm will be effective for your children also. When Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, that wasn't just for the sins of one generation. It didn't just have, uh, it's not a redeem or a voucher for one generation. It's good throughout all time. Thus he will continue to clothe future generations in the righteousness of God. Now let me show you some of the implications of this. Because Christ's perfect record gets applied to us and will be applied to our children, it means that there will never be a need for your kids to seek a new means of justification. They won't need to seek out a new religion. They won't need to bow at the altar of other idols. Christ is a sufficient Lord and Savior. He is our justifier for all generations. This is, this is the message of historical Orthodox Christianity. Christ is sufficient. So we stand on that promise and we teach our children to stand on that promise. Christ is enough. Now here's another implication. Because Christ has imputed his righteousness to us, that we're clothed, he takes our filthy garments, he puts them on himself, nailed to the cross, boom, they're, they're paid for. And then he gives us his righteousness and clothes us in his righteousness, and he does this to our children, this means that we will never be turned away from God. Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God will not and cannot deny himself. Kids will belong to God. The righteousness will be extended. Now, if you go up a few verses to, to verse 10 of Psalm 103, um, you'll see that it says, He does not, speaking of God, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, this points to the third facet of our salvation, which is the forgiveness of sins. This is the promise that Peter references back in Acts 2.39. When he says, this is a promise for you and for your children. It's including the forgiveness of sins. This means the blood of Christ applied to sinners by faith will not lose its efficacy. No matter how big the pile of sins are that your kids will accumulate, which, to be frank with you, they learned most of them from you. No matter how big that pile gets to be, there will always be forgiveness for the repentant sinner. Even, listen, even for the child who might grow up in the faith, that for a time walks away from God, turns away from the faith, God has forgiveness for them when they repent. So this is a promise. God has forgiveness. And the final facet that I want to touch on is packaged up in the same passage. In Acts 22, 39. It says, this promise is for you and your children. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God promises us the Holy Spirit. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 59, 21. Where it says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. 
This is a promise the Holy Spirit, who has efficaciously and sovereignly regenerated us, will do the same for countless generations. It's a promise that the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us in truth will do the same for our children and our children's children. It's the Spirit who keeps us from gratifying the desires of the flesh will restrain the sins of our children. The same Spirit that convicts us of our sin will not stop convicting future generations. The Spirit will continue to work, to be with us. And this is the real kicker of the promise. In having the Spirit, it's a promise that God will not leave us or forsake us. That God, in His Spirit, through His Spirit, will be with us and our children until the end of the age. This is a promise that we will not be left alone. God will not just you know, start to walk away from humanity. It's like, I had enough of this. Don't. He gives us His Spirit, like, it's, it's a guarantee of what's to come. It's a down payment on the reality that we will be with God for eternity and now in real time, right now, we get to and our children get to be with God. He will not turn away from us. Now, these four things just scratch the surface on what God promises to us and our children. We could literally go through Ephesians 1 when it says that that we've been given every spiritual blessing, right? All all these blessings are promised. We we go through those, dig through all those, and show what awaits our kids. But these four are, are the granddaddies of them all. And as we reflect on these, as we, right, um, know them and enjoy them, cherish them, our hearts should be swelling with longing for them to be realized. So that our kids would know the steadfast love of the Lord. That our kids would know the forgiveness of Christ. That the righteousness of Christ would be applied to them. That the Holy Spirit would not forsake them. Now if in Paul's longing for the Jews to lay hold of these promises. if If it causes him to say, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If this is Paul's attitude for his fellow Jews, how much more should we long for this for our kids? But the good news is that we do not have to be cut off in order for our kids to hold on to the blessings of the promise. God desires to save and bless our kids through covenant succession. This is the glory of God, of making promises and keeping promises for us and our children. And we lay all these promises out. Say, God promises this, God's going to deliver this. We expect God to do this. One of the next questions that typically follows is, is this guaranteed? Is this an automatic thing? How do I know that this for sure is going to happen? But this isn't automatic. Because as we stated earlier, covenant succession is accomplished through the divinely ordained means of covenant nurture. It's not an automatic thing. It's not a default thing. And understanding the covenant, understanding covenant nurture is the key to understanding the promises of God and how these promises work. Now, if we don't understand covenant nurture and how the promises of God work, we might be tempted to take a passive approach to our parenting. We assume that the promises of God are as good as done, right? That all we have to do is just kill time and wait for the morning that our kids pop out of bed one morning, 
Come downstairs and say, you know what, Dad? I think I was born again today. <laughs> right? There is no automatic transfer of saving grace to our faith. It's not hereditary in the same way that, that blue eyes and red hair might be. To believe the promises of God requires work on the part of parents. Claiming promise without work is presumption. Claiming promises without laboring for them is nothing but presumption. And we know that because James 2.17 tells us that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So genuine faith... Genuine faith in the promises of God is going to lead us to an active work of faith. And as we believe and understand the promises of God, what it generates in us is a kind of rest and a comfort. Um, but, but not a rest and comfort that promotes inactivity or stagnancy, but rather the opposite. It's a kind of rest and comfort that produces faithful and joyful parental labor that is followed by the prayer, establish the work of my hands. This is what we mean by covenantal nurture. This faithful parental work is a condition of the promise. God, God's promises have conditions attached to them. A lot of times we get so wrapped in the beauty of, of, of the promise that we kind of overlook the conditions of it. In fact, every promise that I've read to you so far has had conditions attached to them. Robert Rayburn says God's promises in the Bible are almost always, without exception, condition-laden. In other words, God's intent to bless and fulfill the promises to the next generation in large part rely on the faithful living and activity of parents. This is what we might refer to as covenantal duties. Parents have these responsibilities, this God-ordained work that they are to carry out. This is why you see the command. Uh, it's not just saying, hey, God's going to bless the generations, but there's always this command of teach them, tell them, show them the wondrous works of God. Let your mouth be loaded with the word of God so that they would know who God is and then disciple them in the way of Christ. These covenantal duties do not, listen to me, they do not negate God's sovereignty and salvation or diminish God's ability to deliver on his promises. Rather, these covenantal duties show us God's design for cultivating generational faithfulness. You, parents, are God's design for propagating covenantal faithfulness. Covenant succession happens through covenantal nurture. Now let me show you where this is at. Psalm 103. We read this already. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those, here's a condition, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and those who remember his commandments to do them. Just right there in one, one passage. I could dig up some other ones. I don't know if I'm going to have time. To. But the covenantal duties here that we see according to Psalm 103 just gives us a blanket of what these are. 
Covenantal duties are to fear the Lord, to keep covenant, and to remember to do God's commandments. This is the activity of faith that Christian parents must give themselves to if they truly desire to see the covenant succeed to the next generations. Right? And it's Christian parents who are doing these things who are the ones that can claim the promises of God and find deep comfort in them. Now, at first, this might sound legalistic or, or some kind of version of works-based salvation. And, and maybe you're there ready to cry out like, but what about grace? Right? Where's the grace? Now, that impulse isn't necessarily bad. Because it's essential that we don't scramble the relationship between faith and works. It's crucial that we don't get the heart of faith, the, the, the cart of faithful obedience before the horse of trusting in God. Doug Wilson says this, nowhere is it more important to have the theology of justification and sanctification straight than here on the subject of child rearing. We are justified by faith in the promise of God, manifest in our initial trust. We are sanctified by faith in the promise of God, manifested by ongoing obedience. We are set free to walk through the process of sanctification because we have been fully and completely justified by grace alone. And just as parents, we parents are justified by grace through faith, so too must our children be. We cannot justify ourselves or our children by our own works. We don't get to stand at the gates of heaven and vouch for our kids. Like, look at what I did. This is, they earned this because I did this. They must enter the kingdom of heaven by being born again themselves. The way, the only way into heaven is through justification by grace, through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our job as parents is to point them to Christ to the only place where they find their justification. So we, as parents, in our, in our parenting activity, we're not justified by faithful covenantal parenting. In the same way that, that we rely on grace for justification, we rely on God's grace to enable us to do the conditions which God calls us to do. We rely on God's grace to enable us to keep covenant and to obey the commands. It's the Spirit of God who compels us towards these things. Faithful covenant parenting is a product of God's grace in our lives. It is God who enables us by his Spirit to walk faithfully, who supplies us with the grace and strength needed to fulfill all of our covenantal duties. And so this, again, brings us back to the idea that parenting is, above all, an act of faith. Now that we understand some of the reality that our parental obligations, there's covenantal duties on parents um, that, that are involved in order for us to see our children lay hold of the promise of God, we must ask then, what, what does it now look like to stand on these promises? What does it look like if, if faith isn't just a, an intellectual assent, but an activity? What does it look like for me to stand and not sit on God's promises? Right? Standing takes effort. You all get to sit for, third, you know, 60 minutes, and my knees are tired. <laughs> what does it look like? Now I'm going to show you five ways. Five ways 
that Christian parents must stand on the promise. This is what it looks like. Number one, model faithfulness. Model faithfulness. Deuteronomy 4.9 is another passage that Rob mentioned last night that, that talks about covenant succession. And before it gets to telling us to go tell our kids about God, it says this. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. If you want your kids to keep the covenant, then you need to keep your soul first. Your job as a parent is to show your children what faithfulness to Jesus looks like, not just on Sunday mornings, but in all areas of life. You are the trendsetter for your family when it comes to faith and obedience to Jesus. Nothing, listen, nothing will sabotage your intentions to raise godly kids more than your own hypocrisy. So if you're, if you're wanting to, Get your kids to love Jesus and obey Jesus. Like, just get it figured out. And you're not doing it. You're disobedient towards the Lord. They're going to see right through that. So to raise faithful kids, you must model faithfulness yourself. This means maybe the first step of parenting is to take your own discipleship seriously. You don't let a day go by where you don't recall the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, where you don't take time to count all of his glorious benefits and blessings that you have, where you don't let your heart swell with the joy of the Lord and just let thanksgiving flow out of you. It is your duty to do this. You gotta let the joy of your position in the, in the covenant family of God drive you and your family into faithful rhythms, faithful church attendance, and serving the body of Christ, investing in gospel community, missional community. Give yourself to the rhythms and seasons of the covenant community. We've got Lent that's coming up. Lead your family in the rhythms and seasons of the church. When you're at home, create an environment that is saturated with the word of God. The Bible is open at the table. The Bible is open at bedtime. You've got scripture loaded on your lips, ready for conversations. You've got it posted up on your wall. You've got catechism questions rolling in the car. The, the scriptures saturate our homes. You read your Bible, and you do it in front of your kids. Right Now, it doesn't mean that all your Bible study is going to happen in front of your kids, because if you've got four boys... Then it's not going to be very productive. You might need to have some time, but you better open up your Bible in front of your kids. Pray in front of your kids. Do this in earshot so your kids can hear and see you taking your faith, your discipleship seriously. And the more that you live out of this gospel identity, the more that you model faithfulness, the more you enjoy your covenant position, the more your kids will be inclined toward that. Number two. Instruct, I say instruct and command obedience. A big part of being a parent is teaching your kids all kinds of things, right? How to use a fork, how to get dressed, how to ride a bike, how to drive a car, how to interview for a job, how to talk, which that's really important, how to talk to and how to treat the opposite sex, 
Now, while all of this stuff is important, while all of these are key skills that are needed to succeed in life, there is no more important instruction to offer your child than to instruct your kids in the way of the Lord. But here's the deal. You cannot do this if you do not know the way of the Lord. You cannot do this if you do not know the word of God. So you have to know the way of the Lord before you teach it. And so that means that you must be a student of the scriptures. You must be a practitioner of the way of the Lord. But you'll also need to open the Bible with your kids. Discussing Sunday's sermon on the car ride home and figuring out the implications of that message is great. I think that's tremendous. But that's not enough. That, that, just, that, that one, two hours on Sunday isn't enough instruction for your kids. You need to open the Bible together as a family. And to very, depending on your ages, it's going to look a little bit different. But, but the older kids get, the more probing questions. Like, what does this mean for us as a family? What, what is the word of God saying to us? This not only means that there's formal settings where you sit down to read the Bible, where you sit down to pray and sing together as a family, but you're also doing this on the go. We saw this clear instruction in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently, diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's formal times of instruction, but there are also informal. In fact, these these informal moments of instruction are typically the most potent and memorable kinds of instruction. Not only that, they are the most timely Because in real time, these questions pop up. You've got to be ready to respond. And and so don't let those moments pass. Don't let those opportunities go by. It's, if you're in your, you're parenting kids in the teens, be okay with losing that extra hour or two of sleep so that you can sit with your kid and to discuss what's happened, what's transpired throughout the day. What does the Lord have to say about this? What does faithfulness look like in this, right? Instruct them in the way. This might mean getting off your phone when you get home from work and try to initiate conversation, right? The dinner table, making that a priority. Share with your children the instruction you've received from the Lord and ask them what the Lord has been teaching them. You initiate that. You lead that out. Now, just as important as, the way, uh, as what you instruct is the way that you instruct. We ought to instruct our, our children in the same way the Lord instructs us. And Psalm 32 tells us how. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. We do not instruct as tyrants, but as loving parents who want our kids to successfully navigate this broken world. Our faith is not cold and robotic. Therefore, our instruction in the faith should not be either. And we talked about instruction in the home and what that looks like, but what about other places? Christian parents must ensure 
that all other kinds of instruction our children receive are aligned to what we're doing, that they're aligned to the scriptures. As Rob drew out some implications last night, this carries significant implications for education. God requires Christian parents to give children a distinctively Christian education. We cannot let godless schools undermine our covenantal duties as parents. Now, the reality is that if we neglect to to instruct our kids, they will be instructed by someone else, or, or worse, the internet. The internet will instruct your kids. There are no days off when it comes to instructing our children. And the the reality is there is a limited time domain that we have before we shoot our kids off into the world and, and they go out there and we find out if our instruction has been thorough and convincing enough that our kids hold on to it. Now as we instruct our children, we ought to be also commanding obedience. Not just telling them, but commanding obedience. The reason why we command obedience from our children is because the Lord commands children to obey their parents. We're not saying to our kids, here's a suggestion, here's a tip and trick that might work. We're saying this is what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Go and do it. It's our duty to command our children to obey us as we teach them to obey the scriptures. God gives this authority. Listen, God has given you authority to command your children's obedience. Now, teaching kids to obey is the training ground for our kids learning to obey God their father. If you don't command obedience to your children at home, how will they learn to obey their father in heaven? Not only will you set them up for failure down the road, but you are robbing them. Listen, by not commanding your children to obey the Lord, to obey you, you are robbing them of blessing in real time. Let me show you what I mean. Quoting the fifth commandment, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And he says, this is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This command for your children to obey their parents, there is a a promise embedded in this for kids that it will go well for them, that they'll live long in the land. This is a promise that our, our kids need to know and be reminded of often. In fact, this is the first promise that our kids, the Schmidt boys, have learned, right? You need to obey me, so it will go well for you. And when it doesn't go well for you, there are consequences. Now this brings us into... The third piece, let me just wrap this up by saying, instruction and commanding obedience is the way that we stand on the promise of God. This is an activity of faith. And when our kids do not heed our instruction, when they disobey our commands, the third way that we stand on the promises of God is by issuing godly discipline. Now, I'm not going to go into depth here because Pastor Justin touches this in the next session, but I'll say this, Christian parents must discipline in a tempered and consistent manner. Failure to bring reproof and correction will establish ungodly attitudes and behaviors that will bring vexation upon you and your child. Whereas Proverbs 29, 17 says, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. And though it may be unpleasant, as Hebrews 12, 11 says, discipline, though unpleasant and painful in the moment, it yields 
the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So parents, stand on the promise and discipline your child in faith. Fourth, intercede. We intercede for our kids. Now this is something that is is not, at least from what I I can collect, this is not something that is explicitly commanded. We don't see a, a, a command for parents to pray for their kids, but from from all of the single godly parents that I know, I don't know a single godly parent that doesn't pray for their kids. We are to pray for our children, intercede for them. Of course, we pray for them to be healthy, make friends, do well in school, find a, a spouse that loves Jesus, to keep them from temptation. All of these are good things and fitting things to pray for our children. We pray for them when they grow through trials, when they can't make sense of relationships. We pray for them because we love them. And we want God's best for them. But we also pray for our kids because we have responsibility for them. We are are asking God to do what only God can do, save their souls. We ask that God would keep the promise in spite of our failures to live perfectly as covenantal keeping parents. And the reason why we go to, to request this big, uh, this big request with God, for God is that we are responsible for them. They have been entrusted to us. They are God's children that have been entrusted to us for their care. We are stewarding God's children. So our prayers are also ways for us to take responsibility for the sins of our children. Now, an example of this is found in Job chapter 1. We're told that Job is a righteous man. And Job, it says his sons used to gather and they go and hold a feast in the house of one of their sons on this day. And he would send an invitation and bring all the family in together. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job, as a righteous man, is taking responsibility for his children. This is, this is, in fact, this responsibility taking is an aspect of his righteousness. He took responsibility for his children and stood before God as their representative, offering prayer and sacrifice. Job did this because he's thinking covenantally. These are my children under my umbrella, my covenant headship. Now, it's right for parents to do the same today, that we are to intercede on behalf of our kids, listen, especially for those kids who have gone astray. We are to pray for them. Those prayers never stop. Lord, make them prodigals. Christian parents are to pray for their kids like Job did. Lord, I know they sinned. Please forgive them. But unlike Job, we do not need to offer sacrifices because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. There's no need for the the blood of bulls or lambs. When we confess the sins of our children, the sacrifice has already been made for them. All that needs to be in place is a contrite heart. So we plead the blood of Christ would not be shed in vain that our children would have the faith to lay hold of the promises, that God would grant our kids repentance. And and, and listen, each week, this this is on my mind, each week when I take communion, 
Each week, I'm standing up there, I'm receiving the elements. I'm not just for myself, but I'm thinking of my children. Confessing my sins, I'm confessing the sins of my family. Intercession is the fourth act of faith that is standing on the promises. And the last one is in the same vein, uh, but it's different enough that it deserves its own, its own line, okay? It's this, that we stand on the promises of God when we pronounce blessing over our kids. Now, this is something that you see throughout the, the patriarch narratives, through, through the book of Genesis, you see the father pronouncing a blessing upon his children. Um, it, it's usually towards the end of a father's life, right? When this blessing is offered to kids, the succession, you're going to carry on. There's gonna, this is what awaits you in your future. But, but here's the thing. I don't think we need to wait until our deathbed to start issuing these blessings over our kids, Right, to start speaking the words of God over our kids. Now, I'm not talking about uh, uh, these blessings, you know, like speak it into reality, like that our kids are going to get these D1 scholarships or they get loaded with lots of money. These are not necessarily the blessings that I'm talking about, but I do think that, that there is a blessedness that comes with this, that, that some of those things may follow, you know, trickle down. But what I'm talking about is the kind of blessing that God loves to give. Blessings that sound like 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Or this classic from number six. May the Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lifted up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In certain faith, let us pronounce these blessings over our children. Knowing that God intends to use us, our, our, our covenantal duties, to bring about his promises in the life of our kids. So that's what it looks like to stand on the promises. Now, as I'm wrapping up here. There will be seasons where the promise of God are taking shape. We can see, like, we, things are moving in this direction. And it's very exciting. It fills us with joy and gladness to see these bursts of growth and faithfulness in our kids. And as awesome as there are, there will also be seasons where parenting is hard and demanding, where things may not be moving at the clip that we had hoped. But it's in these seasons that the promise of God become even more significant, even more to be cherished. The promises of God are meant to serve as encouragement for you as Christian parents. They tell you that your faithful labor for the Lord is not in vain. By God's spirit, he gives you the faith and the strength to faithfully fulfill your covenantal duties. And as you live faithfully to your covenantal duties, God will be faithful to keep his promises to us and our children. As J.I. Packer says, the stars may fall, but the promises of God will stand and be fulfilled. It's because of that reality we stand on the promise of God.